الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله Verily the praise belongs to Allah We praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness And we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves And the evil consequences of our deeds Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray And whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone And that He has no partners or associates and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger. Uh, we'd like to begin this evening in our sixth lecture uh, from the book of Salat or specifically the last or the third section of the book of Salat from Umdatul Ahkam or the explanation Taysir Al-Alam the Shah of Umdatul Ahkam by Shaykh Abdullah Ibn Abdurrahman Ali Bassam Hafidhullah. In this chapter, uh, or in the previous lecture, just briefly to review, we discussed in the previous lecture concerning the prayers of the traveller, specifically the rules or regulations concerning Al Qasr. Uh, the papers didn't come yet, this is from last week. The rules concerning Al Qasr or shortening the prayers. Can you take this one? Because that's my... Inshallah. Uh, last week, we mentioned from the book, the hadith, hadith number 129, the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar, radiallahu anhuma, may Allah be pleased with him and his father. He said, Sahibtu Rasulullah, صلى الله عليه وسلم فكان لا يزيد في السفر على ركعتين وأبا بكر وعمر وعثمان كذلك يعني عبد الله بن عمر He said that I accompanied the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم and he never offered more than two rakah during the journey يعني he never used to pray the prayers as more than two rakah during the journey and likewise it was the practice of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman radiallahu anhum may Allah be pleased with all of them yani that they used to pray the four rakah prayers that is the Dhur and the Asr and the Isha shortened instead of four rakah as two rakah uh, <coughs> concerning this hadith we said that there was a difference of opinion amongst the scholars as to whether or not the shortening of the prayers is obligatory is it wajib or is it a permission a ruqsa yani is it obligatory that you must shorten the prayers or is it permissible to shorten the prayers but not obligatory and we said that the first opinion was the opinion of the three imams al-imam malik and al-shafi and ahmed they all held the opinion that it is permissible to perform the prayers complete as four rakah 
But it is preferable to shorten it. Not obligatory, preferable. That it's mustahab to shorten it. The other opinion was the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, who held that shortening the prayers of four rakah to two rakah is wajib, obligatory. That it's mandatory. You don't have any choice in the matter. But whoever is a traveler, they must shorten their prayers. The first opinion that it's preferable, but not obligatory. And the second opinion that it's obligatory. Those who said that uh, it was obligatory to shorten the prayers, that is Madhab uh, al-Imam Abu Hanifa and along with him al-Imam Ibn Hazm, uh, they held their opinion based on the fact that the Prophet ﷺ, when he was traveling, always shortened his prayers. Uh, and the other group who said that it's not obligatory but it's preferable, they said that the actions of the Prophet ﷺ do not indicate wujub. They don't indicate that something is obligatory, but they prove that it's mustahab. And if the Prophet ﷺ did something, we understand from that that it's mustahab, it's preferable. But if he ordered us to do it, then we said that it's obligatory or wajib. Uh, and they mentioned a number of other hadith, those who said that it was obligatory. They also mentioned the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha that's reported by Al-Bukhari and Muslim, where she said that when the salat was first ordained, it was made obligatory as two rakah. All of the prayers were two rakah, and then the prayers for traveling remained as two rakah, while the prayers for the resident was increased later on from two rakah to four rakah. Uh, and those who said that um, it's not obligatory, yani the majority, Imam Malik and Shafi and Ahmed, they answered this by saying that this is a statement from Aisha radiallahu anha, it's not a statement from the Prophet sallallahu and therefore, therefore they said that it's not a necessity that we have to accept uh, this statement since it is a statement of Aisha radiallahu anha and not a statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Uh, then there were some other evidences, the ayah from the Qur'an, the majority, they said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an, لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ جُنَاحٌ أَن تَقْصُرُوا مِنَ الصَّلَاةِ يعني that there is no blame on you if you shorten your prayers. They said, we understand from this that it's permissible to shorten the prayers. If Allah said there is no blame on you for shortening the prayers, that means it's permissible, not that it's obligatory. Uh, This, inshallah, in, later, inshallah. This paper is from last week. Um, also, they mentioned the hadith of Aisha, radiallahu anha, uh, those who said that the prayer, it may be performed complete as four rakah, or it may be shortened. That is the majority opinion. They said, as a proof, they said that the origin of the prayer is that it's four rakah. If we say that it's qasr, it's shortened, it means it has to be shortened from something which is longer. So they said originally the prayer was four rakah and then it was reduced to two. Therefore there is no harm in praying the prayer in its original form, even though it's permissible to shorten it. Um, this is a summary of uh, the difference of opinion concerning the obligation uh, of shortening the prayers. Is it obligatory to shorten the prayers or is it a ruqsa, a permission which is not n necessary but you may resort to it if you like. They said that it's a ruqsa, the majority. That is Malik and Shafi and Ahmed. They said that it's a ruqsa and that it's preferable, it's mustahab uh, to make it shortened. But if anyone made it as complete, it is permissible.
from this hadith, the Shaykh mentioned a number of rulings. The first of them, he said that it is legislated in Islam to shorten the prayers of four rakah to two rakah when you are traveling. Number two, that shortening the prayers from four rakah to two rakah is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ since he always did it. And it is also the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin when they were traveling as mentioned in this hadith. Yani that the Prophet ﷺ used to do it and so did Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman. Number three, that shortening the prayers is a general ruling. When the one travels for hajj or for jihad or for any journey which is in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of the scholars said that the shortening of the prayers is the right only for those who make a journey which is permissible, for permissible reasons, not those who make a journey for sinful objectives. But the correct opinion is that shortening the prayers is a general rule for any Muslim who travels. It's permission generally for any Muslim who travels. Also, he said that from this hadith we understand the kindness and consideration of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in giving an ease to the Muslim when they are traveling, shortening, allowing them to shorten the prayers. And it also shows the lofty and noble nature of the sharia in lightening the obligations on the believers when they are in difficulty. And the last thing he said, number five, is that uh, traveling has been mentioned in this hadith in its absolute sense. It has not been restricted or defined as a long journey or a short journey. Therefore, we should leave it in its absolute sense and say that the shortening of the prayers is permissible for anyone when they travel, whether the journey is a long journey or a short journey. And this is the opinion of Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, who said that there is no proof in the Sharia, in the uh, Quran, nor in the Sunnah, nor in the Arabic language, that uh, the meaning of as-safar or traveling is limited only to long journeys, and therefore any journey uh, that one takes gives them the permission to shorten the prayers. We also discussed some other issues that were not in the book concerning when do you start uh, taking the permission of shortening the prayers, and if you stop over some place uh, for a lengthy period of time, for how long is it permissible for you to shorten the prayers? And we said, though those were not issues discussed in the book, we said that the, the, the strongest opinion is that when a person leaves their home, when they go out of the city that they live in, once they go outside of the city, uh, then they are allowed to begin shortening the prayers, and, and, and likewise combining the prayers, and if you stop over anywhere, even for a long period of time, there is no proof that you are only allowed to shorten the prayers for three days or four days or five days or ten days, as some of the scholars held opinions accordingly. But in fact, as long as the person is a traveler, they are allowed to shorten their prayers until they return to their land. And also, I mentioned last week, and I just want to repeat it, that shortening the prayers and combining the prayers are two separate issues. The rules concerning shortening the prayers are not identical with the rules concerning combining the prayers. Shortening the prayers is for the traveler as long as they are traveling and combining the prayers. There are two opinions as we discussed in the lecture, the previous lecture before that. Those who said that as long as you are traveling you may combine the prayers. Uh, when, when you are on the road, or when you stop over someplace even for a period of time, and inshallah, Allahu A'lam, Allah knows best, but, apparent, but the strongest opinion appears to be, uh, or the safest opinion is that when a person uh, stops over, I mean, uh, 
I mean, uh, when a person is traveling, on the, in the course of the journey, they may combine the prayers, but if they stop over somewhere, though they may continue shortening them, it is preferable not to continue combining the prayers when you stop over somewhere, but that it is preferable to uh, perform the prayers in their time. Concerning this issue, the question came to us last week, which was a little unclear. Perhaps it was unclear to me because it was a question not related to the topic which we took last week, but it was a question related to the topic of the previous week, and I didn't pay careful attention to that. Uh, and the question was very lengthy, and it includes about four questions in one. It was a little yani, unclear. Anyway, that question, as it came, uh, it said, and I want to repeat it because after I went home, I sat down and read it carefully, and I broke it down into parts so that I could understand it more clearly, and I realized that it was a number of questions, and it became a little more clear. You said that the majority of scholars said that you can combine prayers while in the course of traveling. Now, we said that the majority opinion about combining prayers, the majority opinion is that you may combine the prayers while you're in the course of traveling. But it is preferable to do each salat in their time if there is no need while you're in the course of traveling or while you are not in the course of traveling. Now, we said that if you stop any place during your journey, you are a traveler, but you stopped over for a few hours or a day or a week or whatever, we said that it is preferable not to continue combining the prayers, not to continue combining them, though you may continue shortening them. Uh, if there was no need to combine them, then it's preferable when you stop over to perform each of the prayers in their proper time. The next question, uh, or the next, uh, the next statement is actually a question. Do we define the needs according to ourselves and our own circumstances? And what are the names of the majority of scholars who defined or who said this and defined what that need was? Okay, this question, uh, what are the names of the majority of the scholars who said, it's not the majority, they are the minority who said that it's preferable to perform the prayers in their times if you stop over somewhere, not combining them. This was a little confusion because it said the majority, but actually that's the minority who said so. The majority said you may combine them even if you stop over somewhere, and a minority opinion is that if you stop over somewhere you can continue shortening them, but as for combining them it's better, it's preferable to pray them in their time. Uh, those who, who held the majority opinion that you may continue combining them, from amongst them was a group of Sahaba, and a group of Tabi'een and some of the Imams, including Al-Imam Sufyan al-Thawri, and Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, and Al-Imam Ahmed. They held that you may continue combining them, as well as shortening them. And from amongst the Sahaba, Ali, Wasa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, and Sa'id ibn Zayd, and from amongst the Tabi'een, Mujahid, wa Akrima, and others. They held, this was the majority opinion, you may continue shortening as well as combining the prayers, even if you stop over. The minority opinion, who said that you should only continue combining the prayers if there is a need. That was the opinion of Imam Malik. Imam Malik. He said that he disliked, or it was said that he disliked that a person should continue combining the prayers if they were not in the course of traveling, if they stopped over somewhere, because perhaps people would, con would combine the prayers while there was no need for it, while they could perform the prayers in their time, and performing the prayers in their time is the original rule in Islam, that the prayers are ordained on the believers at fixed times. 
This opinion was also the opinion, besides Imam Malik, it was the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and his student, Al-Imam ibn Qayyim, and from amongst the tabi'een of the earliest scholars, Muhammad ibn Sirin, rahimahumullah, may Allah have mercy on all of them, Muhammad ibn Sirin said that the person is allowed to combine the prayers even if there is no fear and there is no sickness, but they shouldn't make it a habit. Yani, combine the prayer if there is a need. But if there is no need, don't make it as a regular habit to combine the prayers because performing the prayers in their time is the original rule. And this is based on the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran in Surah An-Nisa, Inna salata kanat ala al-mu'minina kitaban mawqootan That verily the prayers are ordained, they are ordained or prescribed for the believers at fixed times. And the combining of the prayers is an exception to the rule. If there is a need for it, Allah made the permission for us to combine the prayers. Otherwise, the original rule is that the prayers are ordained at fixed times and there is a wisdom in those times, in the number of times being five, and the times that they are performed, if even if it's only known to Allah, there is a wisdom in it, and that's the original rule, and that's what's preferable to do. As well, this is based on the statement of Ibn Abbas in the hadith, he said the Prophet used to combine the prayers, إِذَا كَانَ عَلَى ظَهْرِ If he was in the course of traveling, he said كَانَ, that means that it was the regular practice of the Prophet to combine the prayers, if he was in the course of traveling. But it wasn't his regular practice to continue combining the prayers if he was not in the course of traveling. And another reason why it's preferable is because this is the safest position. Since there's difference of opinion about the permission of continually combining the prayers even when you stop over, the safest position is to perform the prayers in their time. In any case, yani this I hope answers the question uh, that came last week the names of those scholars who held both of those opinions, the majority and the minority, and the reason for shortening the prayers is when there is a need. That was the opinion of Imam Malik, it was the opinion of Muhammad ibn Sirin, it was the opinion of Shaykh Hussain ibn Taymiyyah ibn Tay- and ibn Qayyim, and it was based on the hadith of ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. Now, now, who defines the need? The need is based on the circumstances of the individual. If a person who is traveling, if they, even if they stop over in a place, it's preferable for them to perform the prayers in their time, because it has, the prayers have been prescribed at fixed times, and the exception is to join them for need. When the person is traveling, there may be a need, therefore Allah made an allowance. If the person stops over, and they are, for example, tired, or they are uh, yani, subjected to some inconvenience or difficulty due to the fact that they are not in their native land, that they are traveling in a strange land, then they may take yani, recourse to this permission as a facility and ease for them. But as long as they are able to pray at the fixed times with the jama'ah of the Muslimin, yani, when the Muslims pray, they should go and pray with the Muslims, especially for the men, because the prayer for the man is in jama'ah and in the masjid. And whoever combines their prayers, then they would lose out on the prayer in Jama'ah. And Allah knows best. In any case, uh, there's a final statement concerning this matter, which hopefully it will clarify even further. It is from the, the rights of Hajj and Umrah by Shaykh Muhammad ibn Salih Uthaymeen, who also held the opinion that combining the prayers without a need should be avoided. Yani, that whoever has no need to combine the prayers when they stop over, then they should not combine, but that they should perform the prayers in their time. And he says here in his book, 
on page 11 of the rights of Hajj and Umrah. As for combining between Dhuha and Asr and between Maghrib and Isha, it is the Sunnah for the traveler عند الحاجة إليه يعني it is the Sunnah of the traveler to combine the prayers when there is a need to do so. And then he quotes إِذَا جَدَّ بِهِ الثَّيْرِ This is from the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas. And it is similar to the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar. Or this is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar, similar to the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas. The meaning is the same, that when the person has a need is when they are in the course of traveling, when they keep going without stopping. So he should do that in the way that is easier for him. Combining the two prayers in the advanced time, if it is easier for him and more convenient, or combining them in the later time, if that is easier. And this is based on that which is reported in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, in the hadith of Anas ibn Malik, that the Prophet ﷺ, whenever he used to go forth on the road, before the sun had begun to decline, he would delay the Zohar until the time of Asr, and then he would descend and stop and combine them together. But if he began to get on the road at the time when the sun had begun to decline, the time for Zohar had entered, then he would pray the Zohar, and then he would begin his journey. And he would pray Zohar alone, and then begin his journey. Yani, this is according to need. Then the Shaykh says that it has been reported an authentic narration with an authentic chain of narratives in the Sunnah of Al Bayhaqi. Kana Rasulullah kana fi safarin. And if he was actually, he had already left and he was already on the journey and stopped over somewhere. Wazalat al Shams and the sun declined from the zenith, the time of Zohar came, Sallah Zohar Asr And Then in that case he would combine. And Asr. But the first, the previous hadith mentioned that if the sun declined when he was getting ready to start, he would pray Zohar only and then travel. And this is what I was pointing to last week when I said that these two hadiths seem to suggest two different things. One, when he's getting ready to start his journey from his city, if the time for Zohar came, he would only pray Zohar and then travel. And the other, if he was already in the course of journey but he stopped over somewhere, if the time for Zohar came, then he would combine them, Zohar and Asr, in the time of Zohar. If, if, if you expect yani, the prayer before traveling, there are two cases here. One, when the person has not left their city yet. If the time for Zohar came, then they should, somebody get the paper there, then they should pray Zohar alone, because they haven't started traveling yet. They should pray Zohar alone and then travel, and stop and pray Asr in his time. But if they already left their city and they were in another place the following day or days later or weeks later and the time for Doha came while they had stopped over somewhere in that case they are already a traveler they are allowed to combine the prayers that means that they can combine Doha and Asr even in the time of Doha Jazakallah khair Anyway the last statement that the Sheikh says that if the traveler has no need for combining, then he should not combine. أَمَّا إِذَا لَمْ يَكُنَّ الْمُسَافِرُ مُحْتَاجًا لِلْجَمْءِ فَلَا يَجْمَعُ If the traveler has no need to combine, there is no need for it, then he shouldn't do so. And this is, the example he gives, is the person who stopped over somewhere in a place, and they do not intend to continue their journey until after the time for the next prayer. Yani if you stopped at the time of Asr, and you didn't intend to re-continue your journey. You didn't intend to start journey again until after Maghrib or Isha. In that case, there's no need to combine them, but you should pray each of them in their time. 
But if you stopped at Asr and you intended to, to continue your journey before the time of Maghrib, no, then because you can't combine uh, Dhu and, and Maghrib, uh, Asr and Maghrib, but if it was, for example, Maghrib and Isha, if you intended to stay until the time of Isha, then you should perform Isha in its time. But if you intended to start traveling again before Isha, then you may take advantage of the permission of combining. Here he says that the preferable thing, Al-Awla, Fal-Awla, in the Jam, لِأَنَّهُ غَيْرُ مُحْتَاجِ لَيْهِ In that case, he says that not combining the prayers when there is no need for it, praying them in their time, this is preferable because there is no need to do so. And for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ, for this reason, the Prophet ﷺ did not combine the prayers when he stopped over in Mina. And he stayed in Mina. For example, during the Hajj time, he stayed in Mina on the 10th, 11th, 12th, and 13th. Since he stopped over and there was no need to combine the prayers, he used to pr- perform the prayers shortened as Turaka, but he didn't combine the prayers because there was no need or necessity for combining the prayers in that time. So, yani, this is uh, related to the issue, and it is, as I said, it is the opinion of the minority. The majority opinion is that you may combine the prayers even if you stop over, but the minority opinion which appears, and Allah knows best to be, yani, closer to the sunnah, is that combining the prayers uh, should be resorted to only when there is a need to do so. The topic that we have for today is the topic, a new chapter, Bab al-Jumu'ah. It is the chapter concerning the Jumu'ah prayers, the Friday prayer, the Friday congregational prayer in which the khutbah is given. Sheikh Abdullah Ali Bassam, Hafidhullah says that the day of Jumu'ah is the best of the days of the week. The best of the days of the week is the day of Jumu'ah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made it as a special day for the Muslims. And He prevented or led the other nations, the previous nations, away from this. He didn't allow them to take Jummah as their special day, the Jews taking Saturday and the Christians taking Sunday, but He made the special day for the Muslims, Jummah. And this was an honor and a favor that Allah gave to the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This day of Jum'ah has special characteristics related to al-ibadah, worship. There are special matters related to the matters of worship for Yawm Jum'ah. And the most important of those special features of Yawm Jum'ah is the Salat, Salat al-Jum'ah. The Salat al-Jum'ah. And it is the most confirmed of the obligatory prayers. It is the most confirmed of the obligatory prayers. Likewise, it is mustahab to read the two chapters as sajda and al-insan. It is mustahab to recite these two chapters in the dawn fajr prayer on Yawm al-Jum'ah. It is mustahab. Likewise, it is mustahab to recite Surah Al-Kahf, the cave, in the day of Jum'ah, at any time during Yawm al-Jum'ah. And it is also mustahab to ask for salat on the Prophet ﷺ to say Allahumma salli ala Muhammad 
as much as possible in the day of Jummah. All of these points that he is mentioning here, they are hadith for them, but he is just summarizing them. Because as we mentioned many times, Umdat al-Ahkam is a summary of the hadith concerning the rules and laws of worship and transactions. It is a summary. So he here just mentions the shaykh in his explanation, is just passing over some of the important points related to Yawm al-Jummah. Also, of the special characteristics of Yawm al-Jummah, is taking a ghusl or a bath and using yani, sweet-smelling scent and wearing the best of clothing that a person can wear on the day of Jummah. Of the special features of Yawm al-Jummah is going to the masjid for Salat al-Jummah early and engaging oneself in a zikr and dua, remembrance of Allah and supplication until the coming, until the khatib or the imam comes to give the khutbah. And when the imam comes to give the khutbah, the person is expected to listen and remain silent. To listen to the khutbah and remain silent. And also, in that day, there's an hour. Sa'a istajaba. There's an hour or a time period in which dua is especially accepted in Yawm al-Jum'ah. Whoever supplicates Allah in that time on Yawm al-Jum'ah, then their dua would definitely be answered. The scholars differed as to what time it is. Some of them said, they had many opinions. The two closest opinions are those who said, the time period when dua is accepted in Yawm al-Jum'ah is from the time when the Imam sits on the member, when he comes into the masjid and, and sits on the member for the mu'adhan to make the adhan, the adhan of Jum'ah. Yani the adhan of, of Jum'ah, it is sunnah that the mu'adhan calls the adhan for salat of Jum'ah when the imam enters the masjid and goes up in the member. When he does so, the mu'adhan should call the adhan while the imam waits for him to finish the adhan and then he gives his khutbah. So they said that the time, the special time of the dua being accepted is the time when the imam sits in the member until he finishes the salat. Yani until he gives the khutbah and performs the salat. This is the time when dua is accepted. The second opinion of the two closest opinions and perhaps the second opinion is the more correct are those who said that the time when dua is accepted is the last hour of the day of Jummah after Asr. And after Asr up until Maghrib, because the day ends at Maghrib. So the last hour after Asr up until Maghrib, they said it is the preferable time. And there's a hadith mentioning this. Uh, he said that this is the opinion of the majority of Sahaba and Tabi'een, and it is also the chosen opinion of Al Imam Ahmed, Rahimahumullah. May Allah have mercy on all of them. Uh, also, he says that not only the day of Jummah, but the Salat. The Salat, Salat al-Jum'ah, also has special characteristics that are not present in any other prayer. From amongst them is that there is a special gathering for this Salat. And the other prayers of the day are not like Salat al-Jum'ah. Salat al-Jum'ah is a special gathering in which all of the people from a particular area or location join together in one masjid for Salat al-Jum'ah and the khutbah. Uh, also, of the conditions for Salat al-Jum'ah is that the person should be resident, yani they should be in the place of their residence. As for the travelers, it's not obligatory on the traveler uh, to perform the Salat al-Jum'ah, though some of the scholars said, and from amongst them is Shaykh uh, Muhammad ibn Salih Uthaymeen, that if a traveler stops in a place at the time of Salat al-Jum'ah, then they should also join the Salat al-Jum'ah. Also, the special characteristic of Salat al-Jum'ah is that it is preceded by two khutbahs. 
it is preceded by two khutbahs, which those two khutbahs are separated by a sitting. And also the special characteristic of Salatul Jum'ah is that, it, that the, the Qur'an is recited in it out loud. Whereas the prayer which it replaces, the Zohar prayer, is recited in a low tone. Also of the special characteristic of Salatul Jum'ah is that it is prohibited to do any kind of trading or business once the Adhan has been called for Salatul Jum'ah. And when the Adhan has been called for Salatul Jum'ah, it is forbidden for anyone to do any exchange. If somebody was outside of the masjid selling and the Adhan was called for Jum'ah, it's haram for them to continue selling. This is based on the ayah in the Qur'an. إِذَا نُدِيَ لِلصَّلَاةِ مِنْ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ فَسْعَوْ إِلَى ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ وَذَارُ الْبَيْءِ And leave off if the call is made for the prayer on Jum'ah, for the Jum'ah prayer, then hasten to remembrance of Allah وَذَارُ الْبَيْءِ And leave off trading or buying or selling or interactions. Uh, also, a stern warning has come from the Prophet ﷺ concerning those who uh, fail to attend the Jum'ah prayer. For this reason, the Muslims have reached a consensus or ijma that the Jum'ah prayer is fard ayn. It is obligatory in every individual who is responsible for prayer. Except there are some exceptions, as mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet uh, the woman and the child and the slave and the traveler. The woman, the child, the slave and the sick person. And some of the scholars also, most of the scholars said also the traveler, but the hadith mentioned the sick person, the child, the woman, and the slave. That they are not obligated to attend the Salatul Jum'ah, though it's permissible for them to attend. Uh, this is basically what the Shaykh says in his introduction. And then he also mentioned that Imam Ibn Qayyim in his book Zayd al-Ma'ad mentions a very, very long chapter concerning Salatul Jum'ah and its virtues, the day of Jum'ah and the virtues of the day of Jum'ah and the virtues of Salatul Jum'ah. The issues related to Jum'ah are many and we discussed it previously, perhaps some time ago in our Friday lectures. In two lectures, the virtues of, and the characteristics of Salatul Jum'ah, um, we mentioned, I don't know how many, 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 about 50 hadith in our lecture concerning Jum'ah today. We only have about seven hadith, but we will discuss some of the fiqh and the difference of opinion concerning them. As for the remaining hadith concerning uh, al-Jum'ah, it is yani, advisable to yani, consult the books of hadith such as the Sahih al-Bukhari and the Sahih of Muslim, the Sunan of Abu Dawood and other books of hadith which contain the authentic hadith to know more about the things related to Salatul Jum'ah. The first hadith that the Shaykh gives to us, it is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma hadith number 131 anna rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal man jaa minkum al-jum'ata fal yagtasil the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that any one of you who comes to jum'ah fal yagtasil then he must make a ghusl here the lamb and fal it is lamb al-amr it means that it is a command fal yagtasil so whoever comes to Yawm al-Jum'ah, the Prophet said, then he must take a ghusl. The Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman al-Bassam, Hafizullah, says the general meaning of this hadith is that uh, the gathering of the people for Salatul Jum'ah is a very great event and a big gathering from amongst the gatherings of the Muslims. 
where all of the people from a particular city or town or village or an area come together for the performance of Salatul Jum'ah. And as, the, as for the other prayers of the day, the men close to every masjid pray in their local masjid. But on Yawm Jum'ah, the people are supposed to come to a central masjid to collect together for that special uh, prayer and special uh, khutbah. Then the Shaykh says that such a special occasion when the people come together where the signs or the manifestations of Islam are manifested and the beauty of the Muslims is shown. Whoever comes to that gathering should come in their best condition, in their best, and using the best smelling sense that they have and wearing uh, the best of clothing and their body in the cleanest any possible condition. Yani a person should come in their best condition, their body, their clothing, their smell and everything. Because this is a special gathering and it's a time when the Muslims should be at their best. For this reason, the Prophet ﷺ ordered the people to take a ghusl before coming to Salatul Jum'ah. So that people would not come in a bad condition. So that they would not come smelling or dirty where their smell would cause harm to the people who came to pray and would cause harm to the angels who attend with the believers to listen to the khutbah and the dhikr. And there's authentic hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ said that the angels, the recording angels, are at the doors of the masjids recording the people who come for Salatul Jum'ah in the order that they come in. And when the Imam stands in the mimbar, then the angels close their books and they attend the Jummah gathering. Therefore those who come after the Imam stood in the member don't get recorded. Though they get credit with Allah for attending Jummah, but they don't get the reward of those who attended early, as we will mention in the hadith coming. Concerning this hadith, the Shaykh says that there is ikhtilaf or difference of opinion. He says that the difference of opinion amongst the scholars is whether or not the ghusl or the bath for Yawmul Jum'ah is obligatory, wajib, or commendable, mustahab. Is it obligatory or is it commendable? The first opinion is the opinion of the Zahiriya, the literalist madhab, who said that it's wajib and they used as proof. This hadith that we mentioned, the hadith from this chapter, whoever comes to Jum'ah, then he must take a bath. And also they used as proof Another hadith which is recorded by Al-Bukhari and Muslim غُسْلُ يَوْمُ الْجُمْعَةِ وَاجِبٌ عَلَى كُلِّ مُحْتَلِمٌ That the ghusl of Yawmul Jum'ah is wajib on every muhtalim, on every person who reached the age of puberty. They said based on these hadith then that taking a ghusl on Yawmul Jum'ah is wajib, not mustahab but obligatory. The second opinion is the opinion of the majority. And the opinion of the majority is not always the most correct opinion. But the correct opinion is based on evidence, whether they are the minority or the majority. The opinion of the majority in any case is that taking a ghusl on Yawm Jum'ah is mustahab, it is commendable or beloved, it is recommended, but that it is not obligatory. And they use, hadith, they use as proof the hadith of Samra, radiallahu anhu, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, مَنْ تَوَضَّعَ يَوْمُ الْجُمْعَةِ فَبِهَا وَنِعْمَةِ 
فبها ونعمت ومن اغتسل فالغسل أفضل But whoever takes a ghusl on Yawm al-Jum'ah فَبِهَا وَنِعْمَتْ That means that it is a good thing. It is very good to do so. But he said, وَمَنْ اِغْتَسَلَ But whoever takes a ghusl فَالْغُسُلْ أَفْضَلْ يعني whoever, I'm sorry, whoever makes wudu. مَنْ تَوَضَّعَ يَوْمُ الْجُمْعَةِ Whoever makes wudu on Yawm al-Jum'ah فَبِهَا وَنِعْمَتْ That means whoever makes wudu, ablution for Yawm al-Jum'ah then this is a good thing to do. But whoever makes a ghusl, وَمَنْ اِغْتَسَلَ فَالْغُسُلُ أَفْضَرُ Then the ghusl is after. They said, based on this hadith, the majority of scholars said that it is preferable to take the ghusl, but if anybody makes wudu, it is sufficient. It is also acceptable just to make ablution. This hadith has been reported by Abu Dawood, At-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, Nasai, and Imam Ahmed in his Musnad. And it is considered by the majority of hadith to be, or the majority of scholars of hadith, to be an authentic hadith. Al-Imam Ibn Jaqiq Al-Eid, Rahimahullah says, that the isnad for this hadith cannot compare with the authentic hadith which show that ghusl of Jum'ah is obligatory. Even though it is the well-known opinion of the scholars of hadith that this hadith is also sahih, it is also authentic. But its chain of narratives is not nearly equal to the hadith which indicate the obligation of ghusl. For this reason, some of the scholars agreed with the opinion of the Zahiriya Madhab that taking ghusl on Yom Jum'ah is obligatory. The majority of scholars, they answered the hadith which indicates the ghusl being obligatory by saying that those hadith only confirm, they only confirm that taking the ghusl is, was a strong practice of the Prophet ﷺ. But if we examine those hadith, ghusl yawm al-jum'ati wajibun ala kulli muhtalam, that the ghusl of yawm al-jum'ah is wajib, how do we understand that this is only to confirm that it is a confirmed sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ? In any case, they said that wajib in this hadith, it means that it is a right or it is in, yani something that it is better for you to do. They also gave another explanation. Those who said that it's mustahab, that it's not wajib, they said that those hadith were from the early time in Islam. Yani in the beginning, it was obligatory to make ghusl. But later, this, had, this statement of the Prophet ﷺ came later, that whoever made Wudu, fabiha wa ni'mat, then it is good to do. Waman iktasala, but whoever makes ghusl, sahuwa afdal, then this one is better. They said that this came later, that originally it was obligatory, but later it was reduced from being obligatory to being mustahab. And this explanation is a good explanation actually, because it is reported from some of the Sahaba that the Prophet, or that the companions of the Prophet in the early days, when they were very poor, and they were doing hard labor, and they were wearing rough woolen clothing. They used to go out to work in the morning, and when the time for Juma came, they would come to the masjid in the clothing that they were working in, sweaty and smelling, and it was harmful to the people who came to the Juma when a large collection of people and the masjid was small, and the roof was low, it was just a straw mat roof, and it wasn't air conditioned, then it was harmful. That for that reason the Prophet ﷺ ordered the people to make a ghusl. That whoever comes to Jum'ah, then take a ghusl before you come. 
But later, when the Muslims conquered many of the lands and the wealth came to them and they were not doing hard labor and they were wearing better clothing and the masjid was expanded, then it was reduced. The obligation or the need for taking a ghusl was reduced and therefore it became as a preferable or commendable or mustahab act and not obligatory. This is the opinion of the majority of the scholars and this is uh, their explanation. And that, yani, a, an explanation or similar to this, a statement similar to this has been reported in some of the hadith uh, as it was reported by Abu Awana on the authority of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma yani a hadith to that meaning uh, so they said that the reason why it was obligatory in the beginning was because there was a need but when there was no need later on then it was no longer obligatory but it was simply mustahab uh, in any case the Shaykh Abdullah he says that their explanations and their yani, interpretations of the hadith which suggest that the, that the ghusl on Yawm al-Jum'ah is obligatory that those explanations are not sufficient or strong enough to uh, remove the indications that are contained in the authentic hadith which show that the ghusl of Yawm al-Jum'ah is obligatory some of the scholars who held that the ghusl of Yawm al-Jum'ah is obligatory besides the Zahiriya Madhab uh, Al-Imam Ibn Qayyim who said in his book that the obligation of taking a ghusl on Yawm Al-Jum'ah is stronger than the obligation of praying Salat Al-Witr and it is stronger than the obligation of reading the Basmala and he's saying Bismillah and Salat and it is stronger than the obligation of taking uh, or making wudu from someone who has touched a woman or who touched their private parts and it is stronger than the obligation of praying or making or saying Allahumma salli ala Muhammad yani making salat on the Prophet sallallahu in At-Tashahud al-Akhir yani he said in his book that all of these matters that there is difference of opinion about are they obligatory or not he said that the obligation of Ghusl and Yawm al-Jum'ah is stronger than all of those issues it is more certain that it is obligatory likewise Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah said that it is obligatory on the person to take a Ghusl if they were sweating or if there was a smell coming from their body that would cause harm to others. Yani his opinion seems to be that if there is a need for it, then it becomes obligatory. If the person is smelling, if they were sweating, then it's not only preferable, but it's obligatory on them to take a ghusl before they go to Juma. And also, a very strong thing. That is permissible even without a ghusl. Yani they differed about whether or not it's obligatory to take the ghusl for Yawm al-Jum'ah. But even those who said that it's obligatory, they also agreed that if the person prayed, if they came to Jum'ah and prayed without the ghusl, the prayer is still accepted. The prayer is accepted. But the obligation of the ghusl is still upon them. Yani they say he separated the obligation of ghusl from the permissibility or the correctness of the prayer. He said that though they differed whether or not the ghusl is obligatory, some of them saying it's obligatory and some of them saying it's mustahab, 
But as for the prayer itself, even if the person didn't perform the ghusl, they are in agreement that the prayer is correct and acceptable. That the prayer without the ghusl, as long as the person made wudu, the prayer is acceptable. Because the condition for the salat is to be in a state, and to be, is to be in a state of tahara. As long as the person made wudu, the prayer is acceptable. But those who held that it was obligatory, then still they would be accountable for يعني, not performing the obligation of the ghusl according to the opinion of those who said that it is obligatory. Therefore, the Shaykh says that it is preferable for whoever goes to Jummah that they should not go to Jummah without performing the ghusl. It is preferable that anyone who goes to Jummah should perform the ghusl because it is agreed upon that it is legislated yani, that the ghusl is, 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 is an act that the Muslim should perform on Yom Jummah the difference of opinion is whether or not it's obligatory. But whether or not it is legislated in the Sharia, it is legislated. Therefore, it's better that we should do it. And also because the, the evidences showing that it's obligatory are very, very strong. So it is safer and it is better that we should perform the ghusl. And Imam Muhammad ibn Ali al-Sana'ani, the great scholar from Yemen, who did the explanation of Bulugh al-Muram by al-Hafiz ibn Hajar al-Sana'ani, says that those who reinterpreted the hadith which show obligation they looked at the reason they looked at the reason for the Prophet ﷺ commanding the people to make the ghusl they looked at it from that perspective and they said when that reason was removed then it was no longer obligatory but they didn't look at from another aspect the aspect of the ghusl being a form of worship of ibadah, ta'abud that the ghusl is a form of worship. So even if there is no need due to sweat or being unclean or smelly, still the ghusl on Yawmul Jummah is an act of ibadah for Yawmul Jummah. And therefore he said that both of these two factors, the reason why it was originally made obligatory, as well as the fact that even if it was reduced to being only mustahab or commendable, it still remained as an act of worship. And that means that it is better that we should perform the ghusl even if it's not obligatory, but simply as an act of ibadah or worship. From this hadith, the shaykh mentions five points. The first of them is that the apparent meaning of this hadith is that it is obligatory to take a ghusl for Salat al-Jum'ah. It is obligatory to take a ghusl before attending the Salat of Jum'ah. And the original ruling is that we should take the hadith on its apparent meaning. Yani we said that normally an ayah from the Quran or hadith of the Prophet should be understood as it is in its apparent meaning. But to reinterpret it to something else requires a proof. If we say that it means something else, we have to bring a proof. But the original ruling is that we take it as it appears on its surface meaning. In any case, the scholars differed about it. Some said that it was reduced and some said it remained as obligatory. The second point is that in this hadith is a proof that the ghusl should be performed for the salat. And the ghusl is performed not just for Yawmul Jummah, the day of Jummah, but it is performed for the salat of Jummah. This means that the ghusl should be performed before going to the salat. And this is the most correct opinion. Because the intention of making the ghusl is to be clean for attending the salat. This is contrary to those who held the opinion that the ghusl of Yawmul Jummah, if it is performed any time in the day, even after Salatul Jummah, 
then you have fulfilled the obligation of taking a ghusl on Yawm Jum'ah. This is the opinion of the literalists. They said that the obligation of ghusl is to perform it in Yawm Jum'ah, even if you perform it after the Salat. But the correct opinion is that the intention of performing the ghusl is to attend the prayer. Therefore, it is more proper that the ghusl should be performed before the Salat. Number three, also in this hadith, is an indication that it is preferable that the ghusl should be performed just before going to the prayer. Not just on the day of Jummah. Though it's permissible to perform it in the morning, before going to work for example, and then going from work directly to Jummah. But in this hadith there is an indication that it's preferable to perform the ghusl as close as possible to preceding the time of going to the prayer. Number four, that of the wisdom or the hikmah of why the ghusl has been legislated for Yawm Jum'ah, we understand that it is better that a person, uh, when they go to the places of worship or to attend the salat, that they should be in the best condition and best appearance that they may be in. Yani from this hadith we understand that the wisdom of attending any place where you're going for an act of worship, as in this case it is Salatul Jum'ah, but in general whenever we go for any act of worship, we should be in our best condition. And this is hinted at in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya Bani Adam, khudu zinatakum inda kulli masjidin. Yani all children of Adam, take your zina or your best clothing or be in your best appearance in the kulli masjidin at every masjid but the meaning of in the kulli masjidin it means at every time or place of worship whenever you go to the masjid or whenever you go to salat or whenever you go to perform any act of ibadah or worship you should be in your best appearance and best condition and the last point the shaykh says uh, that it is legislated to take a ghusl for the one who intends who intends to attend the Salat of Jum'ah. And for the one who is going to the prayer, not necessarily for the one who is not going to the prayer. And as for those who are not attending the prayer, it is not legislated for them to perform a ghusl. That means, for example, the women who are staying at home, they are not attending Jum'ah, for example. It's permissible for them to go to Jum'ah, but not obligatory. If the woman stays at home and doesn't go to Jum'ah, then the ghusl of Jum'ah is not uh, legislated for her. It is the legislated for the ones who are going to the masjid, to attend the Jummah prayer in the masjid. And this has been indicated clearly in the expression of the hadith that was reported in the Sahih of Ibn Khuzayma, in which it said, وَمَنْ لَمْ يَأْتِيهَا فَلَيْسَ عَلَيْهِ غُسُلُ وَمَنْ لَمْ يَأْتِيهَا The one who is not going to the Salat al-Jummah, فَلَيْسَ عَلَيْهِ غُسُلُ Then there is no obligation for that person to perform ghusl. So the last point is that the ghusl is legislated for the people who, who intend to attend or to be present at the masjid for Salatul Jummah and not obligatory on the people who may not attend. Uh, the next hadith we'll try to take insha'Allah bi ta'ala. Hadith number 132 concerning the two rakah for entering the masjid. The hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhumah 
قال جاء رجل والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يخطب والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يخطب الناس يوم الجمعة the man Jabir ibn Abdullah may Allah be pleased with him and his father said that a man came while the Prophet was giving the khutbah to the people on the day of Jum'ah فقال أصليت يا فلان the Prophet said so and so have you prayed يعني have you performed two rakah when you entered the masjid قال لا the man said, no, I have not done so. قال قم فرقع ركعتيني. The Prophet وسلم, said to him, قم, stand up, فرقع ركعتيني. And perform two rakah. Stand up and perform two rakah. In another narration of this hadith, that's also reported by Al-Bukhari, he said, in the following hadith in Al-Bukhari, he said, فصلي ركعتيني. يعني, he said, فصلي, then perform two and the meaning is similar, but the wording is slightly different. In any case, the command, he said, فَرْكَعَ It is a command to make two rakah. And another one he said, فَصَلِّي It is also a command to make the two rakah. The Shaykh says the general meaning of this hadith is that Sulaik al-Ghatafani radiallahu anhu entered the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Medina while the Prophet sallallahu was giving the khutbah to the people. That man, Sulaik radiallahu anhu, sat to listen to the khutbah, but he didn't pray tahiyat al-masjid, yani the two rakah reading to the masjid. He didn't pray two rakah. He sat down to listen to the khutbah because when he arrived, the Prophet was already delivering the khutbah. So he simply sat down to listen to the khutbah. But nothing prevented the Prophet even the fact that he was busy giving the khutbah, it didn't stop him from instructing or teaching the people. In fact, he addressed that man and asked him, so-and-so, have you performed the prayer? Yani, is it possible that perhaps that man performed Turaka in a corner of the masjid before he entered into the main area of the masjid where the Prophet saw him? He asked, before accusing him of not performing Turaka, he asked first. Perhaps he performed it in the back or someplace else. So the Prophet as we said many times, he always, before accusing or condemning anyone, he always acts first. Sometimes we jump to conclusions. We see somebody in a situation and we make accusations. But the Prophet some asked, have you performed Turaka? Had he performed Turaka in another part of the masjid, he would have left him. But he said, no, I didn't. Then the Prophet told him, stand up and make Turaka. Uh, then the Shaykh says that the Prophet said this in front of all of the people to teach that man at the time when he had a need to be taught and also that that instruction would be of general benefit to all of the people who are present and this is something that has been agreed upon basically by the scholars it is a rule in usul fiqh la yajuz ta'khir al-bayan an waqt al-hajah that it is not permissible to delay clarification of an issue in deen beyond the time when the person is in need of it. If somebody is in need to be taught something now, we, we, we don't say, well, I'll tell them tomorrow, I'll tell them next week, or tell them at another time, when they are in need now. That man needed to be told that when you enter the message, you're supposed to pray two rakah before sitting down. The Prophet ﷺ didn't say, well, all of the people around, I'll tell them tomorrow or when I see him later on. Because he needed to pray those two rakah now. So this is a rule that when someone is in need of instruction concerning a matter of deen or obligations to Allah, or in any matter, in general, 
If somebody knows that that person doesn't know, they should tell them at the time when they are needed, in need of it, not delaying it until a future time. Here the scholars differ concerning the issue of whether or not the person who comes in the masjid while the imam is given the khutbah should pray turaka greeting to the masjid or should they sit and remain silent and listen to the khutbah. The scholars differ. Some of them said he should pray turaka and the others said no. The khutbah is being given, he should just sit and listen to the khutbah. The first opinion is the opinion of those who said he should pray, and that is the opinion of Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, and Al-Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah, and also many of the scholars of hadith. They said that it is legislated, it is mustahab, it is preferable that the person should pray to rakah. And their proof was this hadith, the hadith which we mentioned uh, here where the Prophet ordered that man to get up and pray to rakah. And even though that hadith might be understood by some, as some of those who argued against it said, no, that was a particular situation for that particular man. But there are other proofs which are more general, which don't inc- are not directed to that man, but are general for everyone. And from amongst those hadith is the hadith in which it is reported that the Prophet ﷺ said, إِذَا جَاءَ أَحَدُكُمْ يَوْمَ الْجُمْعَةِ إِذَا جَاءَ أَحَدُكُمْ يَوْمَ الْجُمْعَةِ وَالْإِمَامِ يَخْتُبْ فَلْيَرْكَعْ رَكَعْتَيْنِ And if any one of you comes on the day of Jum'ah while the Imam is given the khutbah فَلْيَرْكَعْ فَلْ The lamb here again is lamb al-amr It means command فَلْيَرْكَعْ رَكَعْتَيْنِ Then he must perform two rakah This hadith is general including everyone If anybody comes to the masjid on Yawm al-Jum'ah while the Imam is given the khutbah then he must pray two rakah Ah... Uh, the second opinion is the opinion of those who said, no, he should not pray to Raka, he should sit. And this is the opinion of Al-Imam Malik, Rahimahullah, and Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, who said that the person should not pray to Raka if the khutbah is in process, but he should sit. And they use as proof the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, وَإِذَا كُرِيَ الْقُرْآنِ فَاسْتَمِعُوا لَهُ وَأَنْسِتُوا yani, And if the Qur'an is being recited, or when the Qur'an is being recited, فَاسْتَمِعُوا Then listen وَأَنْسِتُوا And remain silent They understood that here the Qur'an it means the khutbah also yani if, the, if the khutbah is being given then you should listen and remain silent And they also use as a proof the hadith which we will come to later two hadith later the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said إِذَا قُلْتَ لِصَاحِبِكَ أَنْسِتْ يَوْمَ الْجُمْعَةِ فَقَدْ لَغَوْتْ If any one of you says to his companion or someone who is near in Yawm al-Jum'ah if someone says to a person who's talking, answer, simply one word, be quiet, remain silent, then that person has lagout. They have يعني, spoken a word or said something that is useless, it has no reward, and it is an evil act. It is an act of disobedience. Because the person in Jum'ah, when the Imam is given the khutbah, should be listening to the khutbah. The Prophet ﷺ said, even if someone was talking next to you, and you are advising him, be quiet, you're supposed to listen to the khutbah. You yourself have violated the rules of Jum'ah. You are not allowed to say anything. Not even to tell the person to be quiet as the Prophet ﷺ said. Even if you said one word, ansit, faqad lagout. You have said something useless. There is no reward for you and it is an act of disobedience. The second group who said that you should sit. Uh, or the first group who said that you should pray. They answered the argument of those who use this ayat, they said that these two hadith 
are specifically related to the topic of performing two rakah while the imam is given the khutbah, while the ayah is general. So these hadith have precedence because they are specifically related to the issue while the ayah is not specifically related to the issue even if we accept the idea that either Quran, Qur'an, even if we say that that is applicable to the khutbah. If we accept that, then still it's general while the command of the Prophet in these hadith to pray two rakah before sitting is specific and that which is specific has precedence over that which is general. Also, the second group who said that you should sit and you should not pray Turaka, that is Imam Abu Hanifa and Malik, they answered or they responded to the hadith of this chapter with a number of answers or a number of responses which cannot begin to refute or to remove that ruling which came in very clear and authentic hadith. Yani the Prophet said, if any one of you comes to the masjid while the imam is given the khutbah then he must pray two rakah what, how can you explain this away? so their answers were insufficient and not yani, strong enough to reject such uh, authentic and clear hadith for this reason al-imam al-nawawi in his explanation of sahih muslim when he discussed the saying of the prophet sallallahu if any one of you comes while the imam is given the khutbah then he should pray two rakah and in the narration in the Sahih Muslim, Imam Nawawi mentions, فَلْيَتَجَوَّزْ فِيهِمَا yani If any one of you comes while the Imam is given the khutbah, then he, should, he must pray two rakah, and he must pray them completely. Yani there's no harm in him praying them completely. Uh, and he says, and Imam Nawawi says, this is a clear text that cannot be removed by any interpretation, reinterpretation or explanation. And then Imam Nawawi says, that I don't believe that any scholar which this hadith has reached in this text the hadith in which the Prophet, not the hadith of the Bab where the, where the Prophet told the man uh, have you prayed and he said no, he said then get up and pray some people might interpret that one but how will they interpret the one where the Prophet said that if any one of you comes in the masjid while the Imam is given the khutbah then he must pray to rakah he said that and Imam Nawawi said Rahimahullah I don't think that any scholar who this hadith with this expression has reached and they believe that it is sahih that they would oppose it. He said, I don't believe that any scholar would oppose it. Unless the scholar thought that hadith was not sahih or unless the scholar didn't come to know about this hadith. But whoever it reached and they believe that it was sahih, he said, I don't believe any alim, any scholar would reject it. That means that Imam Nawawi is saying that the hadith is so clear that its uh, indications cannot be rejected. Yani the obligation of praying two rakah when anyone enters the masjid while the Imam is giving the khutbah. Concerning this hadith, the Shaykh mentioned six points and this is the end of what we will say this evening ta'ala. The first point from this hadith is that it is legislated to give two khutbahs on Yamu Jum'ah and that these khutbahs are part of the symbols or signs or manifestations which require us to that we are required to witness. Yani we should come for the khutbah also, not just at the end of the Jummah prayer and pray the prayer with the Imam without listening to the khutbah. The khutbah is an important part of Yamu Jummah that we must attend. Number two, that it is mustahab to pray two rakah for entering the masjid, Tahiyat al-Masjid, 
and that these two rak'ah are confirmed. There's no doubt about them. Since the Prophet ﷺ ordered whoever came to the Masjid on Yom Jum'ah while the Imam was given the khutbah, that he should pray them. Even in the instance where the Imam is given the khutbah, it is still obligatory on you to pray them. This shows how strong it is to perform the Turaka for entering the masjid. Number three, that a, a short sitting does not eliminate the time for these Turaka or the requirement to perform them. Yani if somebody came in the masjid and for whatever reason, forgetfulness or lack of knowledge, they sat without praying Turaka, then it's okay for them to get up when somebody reminded them or they remembered it's okay for them to get up and to perform the Turaka. Although the proper thing is to perform it as soon as you enter the masjid and it is better to perform the Turaka even before speaking to the people. If you enter the masjid and saw your friends, you shouldn't go around greeting everybody and then pray the Turaka. But the first thing you should do when you enter the masjid is to perform the Turaka. Also, uh, and he said that the proof of this is the fact that the man had sat and still the Prophet ﷺ didn't say, okay, the two rakah cancelled for you since you already sat. He said, no, get up and perform them anyway. Number four, the permissibility of speaking during the khutbah. And it's permissible for the khatib, the one who gives the khutbah, to speak while he is giving the khutbah to address someone individually. And it's also permissible for the one who he speaks to, to talk back to him. Though talking in Jum'ah is not allowed, but the khatib may speak to someone as the Prophet ﷺ spoke to that man and the one who he speaks to is allowed to answer him as that man answered the Prophet ﷺ. Number five, that the Prophet ﷺ did not remain silent about any error or mistake that he saw no matter what was the condition. And even though he was in front of the people, he still spoke about it and mentioned to the person and corrected him. And there are many, many examples of this even in the time of war the Prophet ﷺ didn't leave the people in error, but if he saw them doing something, even though it was yani, a serious time while they were engaging in battle, he still used to correct them. And the last point the Shaykh says, uh, that the person who enters the masjid should not pray more than two rakah, because it is obligatory on him to pray Tahir al-Masjid, which is two rakah, and after that it is obligatory on him, as the rest of the people, it is obligatory on him to remain silent and listen to the khatib or the one who gives the khutbah. So no one should come in the masjid and say, I want to pray a few extra rakah, two and plus two and plus two and plus two, but he should only pray two rakah and then he should sit and remain silent and listen to the khatib. As for the one who comes early, before the imam stands in the mimbar, he may pray as much as he likes. There is no sunnah before Jummah, specific amount, that you may pray two or four or six or eight as it is before Zohar. Before Zohar, it's Sunnah to pray four rakah, preferably two and two. But before Jummah, there's no Sunnah of praying four rakah before Jummah. The four rakah is before Zohar. As for Jummah, there's no number specified in the Sunnah. But whoever enters the masjid should pray Tahiyatul Masjid, and whoever wants to pray more than that until the Imam comes, they may pray ten rakah or twenty rakah or fifty, as much as they like. Yani whoever came early to the masjid should pray as much as they like of voluntary prayers, or read Qur'an, or make zikr, or dua, or istighfar, or whatever. The number of prayers is not limited before Jummah. This is the end of what we want to say today. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. If there are any comments or corrections or questions, we have a few moments insha'Allah. How long was the 
Allahu alam. I don't know that there is any clear indication of how the length, how long, yani in terms of time period, was it 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes. But what is indicated in the sunnah is that it was the Prophet said that from the fiqh or the understanding of the Imam, an indication that he understands Islam is Asr al khutbah wa tul al salat. Yani, wa kama qala Rasul Yani, an indication that the Imam understands the deen is that he makes his khutbah short and he makes his salat long. So this makes us to know that it was the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ to make the khutbah short and to make the prayer long. If he said that that was an indication of fiqh, then he is the first one who has fiqh. So for sure, the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ was short and the prayer of the Prophet ﷺ was long. As opposed to what we found today, most of the people make the khutbah long and the prayer short. It is the opposite of the sunnah. How long it was? Was it 10 minutes or 15 minutes? I don't know that there's any indication. But for sure we know it was short. It was short. And the prayer was long. And there are some hadith which we will take inshallah in the next week as we continue the chapter of Jummah which indicates that on occasion the Prophet ﷺ prayed the Jummah prayer early even, even before the time of Zuhur. And apparently it must have been short. Because they said that we prayed the Jummah and we left from the Jummah and we didn't find any shade from the walls to walk in due to the earliness of the hour. Yani the shade, subhanallah, the shade from any object at noontime doesn't begin until the sun begins to decline. The time when there is no shade is only at the beginning when the sun is directly above the head at the zenith before the world. And as soon as the sun begins to decline there may be some slight, very very small shade and as it declines further and further the shadow of any object is lengthened. But they said when we came out of Jummah there was no shade from a wall. Not from a small thing but from a big thing. The bigger the object is the more shade you will get. They found no shade from the wall which indicates that the Prophet ﷺ sometimes prayed the Jummah prayer even before Dhuhr. And also there may be an indirect indication here that his khutbah must have been short because he finished it so quickly that when they came from the masjid the sun had not yet even begun to decline. Or if it declined it was very very slight and not enough for there, be, for there to be any shade. Now. Allahu There's a hundred of no, not a hundred. There are so many opinions. There are so many opinions. And uh, we won't discuss it in our uh, on the hadith that we are taking concerning Yawm Jum'ah. But I think we discussed it in the talks that we gave previously that there are a number of opinions, but there is no clear, authentic proof that there is a specific number. And if there is no authentic hadith that is clear or there is no clear hadith that is authentic which specifies the number. But there are some uh, hadith which indicate for example the ayah of Quran that in, in Surah Al-Jum'ah that when they, when the, it happened in the time of the Prophet ﷺ that he was giving the Jum'ah khutbah and a trade caravan came into Medina and the people left to attend to the trade and business 
And some of the hadith said that no one remained with him except 12, a number of 12. Which means that there were a small number of people. Based on that, some scholars said it have to be at least 12. Other scholars said as long as there's the khatib and there's someone to listen to the khatib and some said someone to call the azan, then it's permissible. Three. In any case, none of these proofs, none of these proofs are a clear text from the Qur'an nor from the Sunnah that the Prophet said you have to have at least 40 as many of the scholars said or you have to have at least 12 as some of the scholars said based on that or some said you have to have at least 3 1, 2 يعني they said that somebody has to be calling the adhan then and somebody has to be giving the khutbah and somebody has to be listening to it so يعني these are interpretations that are not clear in limiting or fixing the number of people that are required for Jum'ah. In any case, there are different opinions about it. And, uh, and I don't think we will have time to discuss it in any detail because it didn't come in the hadith that he mentions here. He only mentions about six or seven hadith. We will deal with those hadith and we may quickly run through some other hadith related to Jum'ah quickly. But uh, the hadith related to Jum'ah are so many. I think in those lectures we took about 40 or 50 hadith. And there's no way for us to discuss 40 or 50, 50 hadith in these days. And Allah knows best. Now. Now, it is recorded in hadith It is recorded in hadith That uh, the obligation of Jum'ah is not That there are four people who are exempt from the obligation of Jum'ah And of them is the slave Al-Abd al-Mamluk The Prophet said Al-Abd al-Mamluk the slave which is possessed or owned by someone is not obligated to attend the Jum'ah prayer. It doesn't mean, well, the reason why Allah A'lam, I don't know, but perhaps the reason may be that Al-Abd Al-Mamluk, it means the slave who is possessed by someone. That one who possessed the slave may order them to do some work. I order you to do something now, which will prevent them from going to Jum'ah. Will they be held responsible then if they didn't attend Jum'ah? It doesn't mean that the slave is not allowed to go to Jum'ah. But if they are not prevented from going, and they went, it is fine. But suppose they are prevented by their master, what can they do? What about the servant in a house today, whose master, kafil, tells them don't go out of the house, and they are not allowed to go to Jummah? Are they to blame? Are they to blame? Can we blame them? Can we say that that uh, servant has committed a sin? They have been ordered by their master. Maybe they would be imprisoned. Maybe they would be kicked out of the country. So they are under the control of somebody. And they are only a worker. What about a slave who is more under the control of their master than the people today who are working in someone's home or driving for somebody or whatever? On Yom Qiyamah, their slave master will answer for them. The one who forced them to do against, who prevented them from obeying Allah. In any case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His mercy has exempted the people who don't have the ability to do something. And from amongst them is the slave. Allah didn't make a burden on the slave who is not in control of their self. A slave is not in control of their self. They are under the control of their master. So Allah didn't make it obligatory on them to attend Jummah. But if their master allows them, okay, it's fine for them to go. But not obligatory. The child is not obligatory. The sick person who is incapable due to their sickness, they are not obligatory. The woman is not obligatory because of her role in the home. Taking care of the house, cooking the food, watching the children, it would be a hardship on her also. 
If she went, if there's no hardship on her, and her husband allows her to go out of the house and she went, there's no prohibition from doing so. But if she is prevented due to her circumstances, Allah has given her the exemption, because it may be difficult. Suppose she doesn't have a servant to watch her children, and she has three or four small children. Shall she carry them to the masjid and go to Jummah? It will be a hardship, and it will be a distraction on the people. So Allah in His wisdom and His mercy has exempted the women. But that doesn't mean the woman who doesn't have any problem, that she shouldn't go. She may go and benefit from the khutbah as everyone else. Even though in some countries they don't allow the women to go. But in Islam, it is allowed, but not obligatory. And Allah knows best. <laughs> Maybe one, they will call the Ikama. <laughs> Here's a question from the sisters. Let someone get it, ask you a question. The, the what? Traveling? Uh-huh. How many days? Okay, as I said, how many days can you take the, the right of combining and shortening the prayers? If you're in Doha for 10 days from India, for example. First of all, we said, the ruling for shortening the prayers is one thing. The ruling for combining the prayers is something else. Okay? As for shortening the prayers, the most correct opinion based on the Quran and Hadith of the Prophet ﷺ is that there is no limit. As long as you are a traveler, the traveler is allowed to shorten the prayers. To make Qasr, as long as they are a traveler. If they stayed in Doha for 10 days or 10 months, if they are a traveler, they are allowed to shorten the prayers as long as they don't pray behind the resident Imam. But if they go to the masjid, and pray behind the Imam who is resident, and he prays four rakah, they have to pray four rakah with him. But if they prayed alone, or they are the Imam, if the people told them, lead the prayer, and they are a traveler, they may make the prayer shortened for ten days or ten months, and Allah knows best. And it was done by Sahaba and Tabi'een for long periods of time, and the Prophet ﷺ did not limit it. As for combining the prayers, the majority opinion is that it's permissible for you to continue combining the prayers as long as you are a traveler. But the most, the stronger opinion is that whenever you stopped over any place for 10 days or 10 hours, if you stopped over any place and you are going to be there until the time of the next prayer, it is preferable for you to perform the prayers in their time along with the rest of the Muslims. Because prayers have been ordained or fixed have been ordained on the believers at six times. They should be prayed in their time, and they should be prayed in jama'ah with the rest of the Muslims. If you hear the adhan, you should go to the masjid and pray with the Muslims. 